Afternoon, folks. We'll get started here. So here's the plan for this afternoon. I'm going to finish off the uh, lecture content, and then we'll spend a few minutes talking about the final exam, what's on it, protocol, etc., etc. Okay? So, last class we started talking about two different control systems that are used. We have the closed loop system, which involves feedback. And we have the open loop system, which does not use feedback. So we're going to take an example of a closed loop system where feedback is involved. And we're going to look at the long jump. So in the long jump, the job is to run as fast as you can, <coughs> pardon me, and then strike a board and, and jump as far as you can. So that's what long jumping looks like. This dude went 25 feet, which is pretty good distance. All right, let's have a look again. And this time, what I want you to look at, can you tell whether or not the long jumper is altering his stride as he runs down? Because most long jumpers assume that all you need to do is put a little mark along the runway as your starting point. You practice, you know it, how far away from the board you want to be, and then you just run, and every time you'll be perfect. But it turns out that you actually use feedback in this run-up. The last three steps get altered. Now you can't see that in, high sp in regular speed. If you film it and slow it down and measure, you can actually determine that the long jumper is altering their stride as they get close to the board so they strike it at the right spot. So that's an example of a, an action that uses feedback. Now how long does that action take? Well, it's probably five to seven seconds that they're running down the uh, runway before they hit the board. Let's have a look at some open loop systems. Open loop, remember, is no feedback. Now, keep in mind that it's a relative term. In other words, there's going to be a little bit of feedback used, but nowhere near as much as uh, a closed loop system. We're going to look at golf and catching balls. All right, so suppose you can catch this, right? So you're going to throw it to me. You don't have to. All right, so hang on a second. So you're going to throw this ball to me. All right? We are about 19 feet apart, 20 feet apart. And you're going to toss it. It's fairly light, so you have to toss it at a reasonable speed. And I'm going to try and catch it, OK? So go ahead. Not bad. Try again. All right, and again. All right. So how did I do that? And how did she do it? She caught it too when I threw it back at her. All right? So what's going on here? Well, I'm going to, sorry, eliminate these uh, from the last class. Erase all, sync from slide. All right. So you can't really see it with the naked eye, but if we photograph it and film it and then slow it down, this is what happens when you catch a ball the way the two of us did there for a moment. About 150 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds prior to contact. Contact is way down here. 
So prior to contact, I put my hand in the appropriate spot where I'm going to intersect the, tr the ball's trajectory. Right? So she was throwing in over here somewhere, so I moved my hand to that position. Okay? Now, the slides on the bottom are simply a different view of the slides on top. So it's the same, same hand. So what I do is initially get my hand into the proper space, proper place. So what we're dealing with in the first two slides is spatial accuracy. I got to get my hand to the right spot. Now, about 30 to 50 milliseconds prior to contact. So the ball is not hit my hand yet. I, I put my hand in the proper shape. Right? So initially, I'm simply moving my hand to the spot. Then I get it to the proper shape to catch the ball. Now here's the really crazy thing. The crazy thing is that before the ball hits my hand, before the ball hits my hand, 14 milliseconds before contact, I begin to close my hand into the shape of the ball. I begin to close it around the ball. Right? Because if I don't, can you throw to me again? Try and throw it just over to this side a bit. All right, so over here. That's what's going to happen. If I don't begin to close before the ball gets into my hand, the ball's going to hit my hand and bounce out. And if you ever play with young children, anybody see? Oh, there. If you ever play ball with young children, what you will find is that they do that all the time. You throw a ball to them, it hits their hand, it bounces out, and then they squeeze. And if you try it with a bigger ball, like, like this, and you throw it to them and you say, okay, wait here. What do they do? The ball hits their hands, then they close, but by then the ball has bounced out. So what you do is say, okay, ready? Close your hands. And they start to close, then you throw them the ball and they actually manage to catch it. So, before contact, you begin closing your hand. Ball contacts, and between 10 and 30 milliseconds after contact, you finish the grasping, so you've got the ball stuck in there. This timing is referred to as the temporal accuracy. So not only do you have to be in the right place, you have to have the right timing or you won't catch the ball. If I begin to squeeze my hands together too soon, what happens? Ball hits the fingertips and bounces off. If I wait too long, it bounces off the palm. Very critical timing is very precise timing required to be successful at this task. So both of us are highly skilled performers. We were able to catch the ball. Good job, no problem. All right? Now, that's what the next, couple, next slide says, right? So it's describing exactly the same thing as I've been babbling about for the last minute and a half, two minutes, okay? Perfect timing required. So catching a ball requires spatial accuracy and temporal accuracy or timing accuracy. Both are needed.
And we learn that really early in childhood. I'm guessing that you've been catching balls of some type for a few years. Like it's not just something you learn today, right? If it's a sport like table tennis, lots of practice required to swing a paddle at the right time, right spot. Both types of accuracy are essential if you're going to be successful. Now, how do I know that that's open loop control? How do I know it's open loop control? How long is your reaction time? 150 milliseconds, about? Well, this task of catching the ball happens in under that. I can't be processing any feedback. If they wait till the ball hits my hand and bounces out, I can't catch it. So I'm not processing the feedback of ball hits hand to begin the grasping action. It must be under open loop control. When she tossed me the ball, I made a judgment that said, now's the time to start closing my hand around the ball. All right? Open loop control. I needed some feedback at the start. As soon as I saw the trajectory, then I did my thing. Take another example, and this example is golf. Golf is quite a simple activity to measure. The ball remains stationary. You have a club in your hand. You swing the club, hit the ball, simple. Except in this study, what they asked the participants to do is if the lights go out, stop your swing. So whenever the lights go out, stop swinging. So if you've got the club halfway down, lights go out, stop. Now, if you have an implement in your hand, there's no way you can stop it, right? Momentum, but you can begin to slow it down, slow it down, slow it down. So the, the dependent variable, or the thing that was measured, is the club head speed. If you started to slow it down, then we recognized that you were paying attention and you saw the lights go out, okay? So let's have a look at the results from this. In golf, you have a backswing, and then you have a downswing, all right? So the club is going back. I start, just begin to bring it down, and the lights go out. They couldn't stop their swing, right? Ball is on, the club is at the top, just begins coming down. They could not stop their swing. The lights went out at the top of the swing. Lights go out, still swinging. Right? So they've got a long time to turn off or to stop the club. And yet they all swung, or 11 of 12 swung. That's in the neighborhood of 100 to 120 milliseconds. So from the time the club is at the top and I start to bring it down, about 100 milliseconds. And they were unable to stop the club. If the lights went out, just as I'm lifting the club up, so just at the top, just before I stop, still many of them were unable to stop the downswing. So the lights go out just as I get to the top, lights go out, and they still are unable to stop the downswing. Crazy. Now, here's what they thought. 
they all thought that hitting the ball turned the lights out. Right? So the club is up here. The light, pardon me, the lights go out. They believe they've seen the ball, and then they hit the ball, then the lights went out. But the lights went out way back here. How is it possible that they believe they saw the ball? And the answer is, once you begin running off an activity, a motor program, you actually cannot process external sensory information. How long does it take to process external information? Well, your fastest reflex is 150 milliseconds. The swing downwards is happening in about 100 milliseconds. There's no time for you to process. Oh, the so what this means is the lights are out. They believe they can still see the ball. Quite remarkable. When you watch baseball players, and if you see pictures, or photographs, not, not pictures, in, but photographs of a batter swinging the bat and making contact with the ball. So the bat is here, the ball is here. The batter is never looking at the ball. They are looking somewhere out here. Because a batter in baseball watches the ball travel, decides to swing. Once they begin swinging, they are no longer processing external sensory or visual information. They've made their prediction. They swing. They don't see the bat hit the ball. Okay? They may claim they do, but they don't. Now, in many activities, I'm going to get out of this for a second here. In many activities, much of what we do is actually a combination. You can't have solely, I'm trying to get the pen to appear here. All right, not happening. All right, so nobody uses exclusively open or exclusively closed all the time. It's a combination. And they are, they are linked together all three mechanisms, right? Perceptual decision and effector in our information processing model are linked together. Now, <clears throat> how do we know that we're in open loop control? What's, what's the cue for open loop control? How do we know that it's open loop control? It has to be open loop control because it's too fast for us to be processing the information. Processing information is relatively slow. Your fastest reaction time is like 125, 130 milliseconds. These activities are happening faster than that. It's not possible that you could have processed information because it takes at least 120, 150 milliseconds. If you've ever watched baseball players, Batters, every time the pitcher throws a ball, this is what you will see from the batter. They're here. Each time the pitcher throws, they step. They step. Whether they swing or not, they are stepping. Why would they do that? 
why would they wait until the pitcher is throwing step? You'll see in a moment why they do that. So what they keep constant is the swing of the bat. That's a motor program. It's runoff that says swing the bat at this speed. They can only track the ball until they start to swing, which is what we just finished talking about. They actually don't see the ball traveling that last few feet until contact. They swing based on their early prediction of where the ball is going to go. It takes less than half a second for the ball to get from the pitcher to the batter. Half a second. 500 milliseconds. It's incredibly fast. And in that time, here's what a batter has to do. First of all, they have to predict the trajectory. So where is the ball going? They have to predict how long before contact. Right? Like how long is that ball? Because some pitches are really fast. Some pitches are quite slow. So you've got a trajectory and timing to predict. Not only that, you have to decide, what should I do? Should I swing at the ball, or should I let it go? Not only that, they have to figure out, or pardon me, not figure out, but retrieve the appropriate program. So if the appropriate program is swing hard, they have to pull that out of memory, and make the swing happen. And all of that has to occur in 500 milliseconds. It's like so fast. And that's why in baseball, if you're right three out of 10 times, you're considered an awesome baseball player. Three out of 10. Wouldn't you love to be considered an awesome student if you got 30%? That's what three out of 10 is in baseball. And that, they get paid millions of dollars for 300 batting average. All right? So this is all happening open loop control. No feedback. They see the pitch, they make a prediction, and then they run off the motor program. Now, in some activities, it's not that easy to break it down. It's easy in the lab to break things down. It's easy in baseball to break it down, but there are other activities like playing squash or golf, or pardon me, squash or, or tennis. It's really difficult to figure out what the performer is actually doing. And our belief is that in continuous activities that go on for periods of time, you are using both open loop and closed loop. You are never exclusively in one. So let me give you an example of this. At the end of this lecture, you're all going to use the stairs, either to go up or to come down. You realize whoever built this, these stairs is crazy? Like, why would you put sets of three? You ever notice when you walk up these stairs, you kind of have to change your stride every, because now it's not the same distance between them. Why are they not all the same or sets of two? Sets of three just totally mess you up. None of you think about that when you walked up these stairs, right? You just do it. Why? Because you're in open and closed loop. Open loop is, okay, take a couple steps, 
Oh, closed loop feedback. Oh, now it's a weird one. Closed loop. Oh, weird one. We're switching back and forth between open loop and closed loop as we walk up these silly stairs. Okay. So this is referred to as parallel processing. You're kind of switching back and forth from one to the other. And because of these open loop, which is no feedback, it allows us to do other things. So my guess is, if you tried to text as you're walking up these stairs, you're not going to be as good as if you were just standing in one spot. Why? Because you're switching back and forth. If you're just standing here, you can text really, really quickly. But if you're walking up the stairs, especially these stairs, because they're goofy, you've got to switch back and forth. So open loop, you're going to be a little bit slower in, uh, because of the closed loop that's necessary to get you up those stairs. So that leads us to this concept of motor programs. What is a motor program? Well, a motor program we think of as, think of it like a song, your favorite song on a CD or on your iTunes that you just kind of click play and it runs off. You don't have to do anything. It just runs it off. So you and I have hundreds or thousands of motor programs to guide us in our daily life. And if you're into any activities, then you have a bunch of motor programs that are specific to that. So baseball, golf, soccer, music, you have motor programs for those things. And it helps us solve the degrees of freedom problem. Remember what the degrees of freedom problem was? There's like a billion ways to touch your nose. But you all run off a motor program and get your finger to your nose, no problem. Motor programs remove all of those other options. You just do it this one way. And you don't have to solve the problem using all the other methods. So what we think of it is, it's like the idea of chunking. When you have to type or text the word the, T-H-E. Most of you don't think T-H-E. You just go the. You type it really, really fast. It's one word. Okay? You've chunked that information together. No feedback required to run it off. So have a look at this slide. Most of you can read it without too much difficulty. Even though there's almost no words spelled correctly. Every meaningful word there is spelled wrong. And yet you're able to read it with very little difficulty. Because you have a motor program that says, when I see a word that looks like, like that, I know it's the word research. This is the word doesn't. That's the word matter. You don't sound out each letter. You just kind of, boom, run off the motor program. I want to show you an example of a motor program. Now, you all missed the motor program. Right? You're focusing on the woman in blue on the balance beam. She doesn't get hurt, by the way. I wouldn't show you one where they get hurt. Have a look. See if you spot the motor program I'm talking about. 
Right? The motor program I'm talking about and what I want you to look at now is in the audience. There's a gentleman in a white shirt who at the end of the performance is going to do something rather odd. All right? So she lands on her head. You see what he did? One more time. What would a normal person do when an athlete lands on their head? You might stand up and go, oh my God, my daughter just curled herself. Not that guy. He's running off a motor program that says stand up and cheer. Because he's got a program that as soon as she finishes her dismount, I'm standing up and... Oops. Right? Not process. If he was processing feedback, would clearly have noticed, we got a problem here. She just landed on her head. What am I standing up and clapping about. Show you one more. Right? He, he runs off the program, but he releases a split second too early. So instead of making it around, or a split second late, he's either supposed to land in front of or behind the bar, he releases... The program has run off, but they started it a bit early or a bit late, and that's the consequence of it. So, what evidence do we have of motor programs? Well, we know motor programs exist because when you do something that's more complex, we have slower reaction times. So we have to think more about what do we need to do. The decision takes longer to, to happen. When we do deafferentiation studies, and Professor Sergio mentioned these, this is when the nervous system is cut, the, the feedback nerves that are coming back from a limb. You often see it with cats, for example, who can continue to walk even though their limb, the uh, nervous system has been severed. You block sensory information, you can do it with drugs as well. And people are still able to do movements even though they can't feel it happening. So that's an indication that a motor program is being run. Cats are still able to walk on a treadmill even though their hind limbs, the, the nervous system has been severed. Um, when you block a limb during motion, so you expect to move from here to here, but you get stopped halfway by some object. The EMG recordings say your muscles continue moving. Even though it's stopped here, you're running off the appropriate program to shows the motion goes to here. So there's lots of evidence of these motor programs. That doesn't mean that <clears throat> feedback isn't necessarily used. Feedback does get used when we have external disturbances. So I'm carrying this tray of drinks in a restaurant and I get bumped. I would use the feedback of whoops, it's moving to one side and move it back. So even though we're using uh, motor programs, we can still occasionally use a bit of feedback. So how do we represent motor programs in long-term memory? Well, let's pretend you're, you're taking up the PKIN called badminton and you've never experienced it before. So we go into the gym and the instructor says, this is a badminton racket. Here's how you hold it. Okay, you don't hold it like a hammer. There's actually a proper grip to hold your badminton racket. 
And here's how you're supposed to stand. So you might practice for a few minutes or hours holding the racket, okay, get it in the proper grip. Here's how I stand. After a little while, you no longer think about how to hold the racket and how to stand. Someone gives you a racket, you just run off the program to put it in the proper place and get ready to swing. The next thing that happens is we are going to learn how to do the overhead clear. So that requires that you bring the racket head back, bring it forward, and follow through. Initially, you do it slowly, and you kind of, okay, now I'm getting it. Then you speed it up. And then these three components, backswing, forward swing, and follow through, are lumped in with grip and stance. You don't think of them individually. You just think, take your racket and hit the birdie. The final thing that you might add is, where do I make contact with the, the birdie as it's flying through the air? Do I contact it above my head, in front of my face, way over here? Where do I contact it? All of those get lumped together into one motor program. Even though it's six separate things that you have to figure out, eventually it becomes one program. And then when you go to play the game and run the overhead clear, the program runs off and you do it no sweat. You don't even think about it any longer. Now how is it that you can run off these motor programs but you can't possibly practice every possible situation. So I throw you the ball from here. I can throw you the ball from here. I can throw you the ball from here. I've never practiced these. We've never practiced this. How is it possible I can do that? Right? You can't possibly practice every possible situation. So how can you run off motor programs if you've never done that activity before? or that particular situation. Throwing from here is different than throwing from way back here. How can you do that? And the answer is this. There are some characteristics that we call invariant. They don't change. When I do this activity, it's not going to change. So the relative force. So for me to throw the ball to my target, we'll keep this anatomy real simple. I need a little bit of bicep muscle and a little bit of tricep muscle to make this ball go. The amount of force, relatively speaking, needed from the bicep and the tricep doesn't change whether I throw from way back there or right up here. The amount of force relative to the two muscles involved stays the same. The relative timing stays the same. The moment that I contract the tricep in relation to when I release or relax the bicep, it's not changing, whether I throw from close or throw from a long ways away. And then the order of the movements is also the same. I start with my hand back here, my forearm is back, my elbow's forward, then this, then this. That order doesn't change. I don't decide to throw one day and it goes like this, no. It's always this action to throw the ball, okay? So those things don't change. Now, that makes life simple. I'm always going to do the same thing. 
What changes is this, the absolute or overall force. So for me to throw from here, I need an awful lot of force to get the ball to travel that distance. If I get closer, I need less force. The timing will change. When I'm close, I can move my arm relatively slowly. If I'm a greater distance, I have to throw it faster. And the spatial position. I might release the ball at this angle when I'm close. When I'm far back, I need a different trajectory to make it to the target. So spatial positioning might change depending on the situation. So what I've done is save processing all those other variables on the previous slide. I'm doing the same thing. I'm just doing it maybe faster, maybe slower. So I don't need to rehearse every situation. And I can still perform. Think of it this way. You're carrying a tray of drinks. Use this example previously. Right? So you've got your shoulder joint, your muscles, etc. You're holding the drinks. What you need is a single command sent from your brain that says, hold the tray parallel to the floor. Okay? Doesn't matter whether you have five drinks on the tray, six drinks, three drinks. You want to keep it parallel to the floor. Somebody takes one drink off, the tray doesn't go flying. You adjust very simply. So what you have is one command, a single if you call it stiffness, it says, be at this angle. And you keep that angle regardless of whether you add objects, take objects off. And that command is stored in long-term memory. So if you are a skilled waiter, and I'm shocked at some waiters and waitresses what they can do. You see them carrying six or seven trays, or trays, plates on one arm. And you're like, how do you do that? Right? It's amazing to see them function. Highly skilled waiters, waitresses are actually kind of really neat to watch as they do their thing. So let me give you another example of a motor program being run off. Uh, here we go. Clearly, if they were processing feedback, the guy at the end of the line would say, wait a minute, there's a crash, I better stop. But that's not what happens. You just go, bang, 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 whoa. Right? Clearly, they're running off a motor program, not processing feedback. They're just doing their thing and yoked. Okay. So, if you're going to learn a skill and develop these motor programs, we need to explain what movement you're going to produce and how you produce it. Right? This is what we need to be able to come up with for our model. So we start off and we believe there are two parts in the brain that are going to allow us to do skilled actions. We have the portion, and I wish the pen was working. I don't know where it's gone. I can't reactivate it here. 
Not sure what's going on. We have the part of the brain that generates the movement. Okay? At the same time, we have another portion of the brain, comparison center. Comparison center. Remember what part of the brain that was from Professor Sergio? Starts with a C. Think about it. And then we have our muscles. So here's what happens. We send a signal to our muscles, indicated by the red arrow here. We send outflow to the muscles. At the same time, a signal is sent to that part of the brain that starts with the letter C. You got it? Yeah. That's it. All right? And our muscles begin to perform, make an action. At the spinal level, remember we're able, the alpha-gamma coactivation system we talked briefly about, we are able to make changes as our muscles are doing things without going all the way back to the brain. Right? So we have these embedded feedback loops that we can do things. At the same time, that comparison center in our brain is saying, this action is not done right. It feels a little bit off. Or maybe it says that's exactly what it's supposed to be like. Once you become a skilled performer, you, you feel these changes or these imperfections. And you can make corrections to the next action. Or maybe during the ongoing action if it takes a long time. At the same time, there's other feedback happening. There's kinesthetic feedback, where you learn where your limbs are in space. So as you're executing an action, you can feel, oh, that doesn't seem right. My arm is, should be in tight, as opposed to way out. And you have external feedback, like hearing and seeing. You see where your limbs are. You see where the ball or puck has gone. Is it in the right spot, yes or no? You take all of that information, you process it, and the next time you do something, it changes. So, how do we develop this model? If you have learned a motor skill, and all of you in kinesiology have learned motor skills, you start usually with an external model. Think about a peek in that you've taken. Chances are that the instructor demonstrated what they wanted you to do. Or they got somebody else in the class to demonstrate it. So that you could form a model that goes, okay, I know what this is supposed to look like. You see this all the time with kids playing road hockey or basketball outside. They never pretend to be themselves, right? When they're playing basketball, oh, I'm Kyle Lowry, or I'm DeMar DeRozan, and the hockey kids are saying, I'm Austin Matthews, or William Nylander, right? They never say, I'm Clyde Femelchuk, right? That's not a name. Like, they're never themselves. They try and model themselves after somebody else. Now, it's really easy in Canada for kids to learn hockey and basketball because there's models on TV all the time. But how would you learn how to play cricket if you live in Canada? You never see cricket on TV, or seldom ever see it. So it's hard to learn, because there's no external models. What eventually happens, that external model becomes an internal model. You start to go, oh, I know what this is supposed to feel like. And then you start making those actions, because you've internalized the model. You slowly then develop a motor program. 
that will produce this internal model. This is what it's supposed to look like. And then you end up developing feedback to um, produce the program. All right? So those things go together. This is one of the reasons that in many sports, like say gymnastics or figure skating, moves are labeled with people's names. Usually it's the first person who does that move, and everybody goes, oh yeah, that's the Fukuhama dismount, or that's the triple Saukau, named after George Saukau who invented it, whatever, right? Because it's really hard to make it up the first time, because you have no external model to see. Once somebody else sees it, or once somebody does it and everybody else sees it, it's easy to copy. But coming up with it the first time when no one else has done it, that's hard. All right, now, the next uh, few slides are a summary to help you with studying or preparing for my portion of the exam. I'm not going to go through these. You should be able to read them. They're simply summarizing the differences with respect to the information processing model between a skilled performer and an unskilled performer. So for example, a skilled performer, they know what cues to attend to. They know what to look for. So remember our model, it's got attention at the beginning, it's got the three decision mechanisms, and then feedback loops. So for each of those components, you should be able to figure out what is the difference between skilled and unskilled. So attention, they know what to look for. They're also faster at finding the cue. Right? So you go through each of these, perception, decision, effector mechanism. Right? You go through these and you can come up with, here are the differences between skilled and unskilled performers. Right? Don't worry about this slide, it's not on the exam. I just think it's a great slide to end with. It kind of links part one and part two, and it tells us how we form habits, which are what skilled performers do. They do the same thing over and over again. All right, let's talk final exam. So, first of all, I'm going to deal with some protocol issues, and then we'll talk content. Final exam, if I'm not mistaken, is written in the Aviva Center. I know where I'm going to be on Friday, December 15th at 2 o'clock, but you folks should make sure you check the schedule to find out when and where the exam is. I don't want to be accused of telling you the wrong place. All right? So in this large venue, we are going to be directing your seating, and we're going to fill up from the back of the hall forward. So if you come in near the beginning, we're going to be sending you down towards the back. You're going to be seated one per desk. Please sit where the Scantron sheet is. Right? Don't sit all over the place. Look for Scantron. Sit there. And if we have to fill up other, uh, make it two per desk, we will seat you again from the back forward. When you come in, please don't have your notes out. Put everything in your bag, clearly studying the last 10 minutes before an exam is a silly thing to do. All that does is make you anxious. Oh, I forgot to look at that. Just put, as soon as you walk in, put your notes away, grab a seat. No calculators, no cell phones, all those sorts of things. You don't need them. 
During the first hour, you may not go to the bathroom. Right? So if you have consumed copious amounts of coffee the night before or the morning of, there are washrooms outside. Use those. Right? In the tennis center, there are all sorts of washrooms set up for students waiting in line. Use those. The first hour, we need to do head counts and sign-in sheets, which is a real problem if people are standing up to go to the bathroom, etc. So either use outside or hold it for an hour. Then you can ask to go and you'll be escorted. Uh, we will not be answering any exam questions during the first hour. Just do the exam. And if you have questions, the best thing is to finish the exam and then put your hand up and we'll come over and answer all the questions at once. Nothing more frustrating than coming to somebody, you walk away and five minutes later their hand is up and you come back and then you walk away and they come back. Just save them all for one, it's like you have one ticket. The answer, we'll answer as many questions as you want, but try and only do it one time. Um, please remember to put the color of your Scantron sheet, no, the color on your Scantron sheet, right? There's different versions of the exam, so put your, we don't make announcements during the exam in the Aviva Center, so you've got to remember to do that so it gets scored in the right spot. Okay, um, next thing. There are two parts to the exam. They're 50-50. So 50% Professor Sergio, 50% my portion of the course. Professor Sergio's section is part one. It'll be fairly easy to determine what is hers because it says part one, right? And then my section says part two. If you have a question that is for Professor Sergio, please raise your hand with one finger and preferably this finger as opposed to one of the others that you might choose. And then you will get the right person coming over, right? If it's for me, then use two fingers. It could be these two or these two, it doesn't matter. But hold it high. It's really hard to tell in the Aviva Center what you've got up, right? So make it clear what you're holding up so the right person comes over to answer questions. There will be approximately 90 questions. So 45 from Professor Sergio, 45 from my portion of the course. There will be questions pertaining to the labs and the readings, certainly from my portion of the course. Professor Sergio stated multiple times that her readings are only uh, as they correspond to the stuff in lecture. Mine, as you found from quiz two, there are things out of the readings that were not discussed in lecture because we don't have enough time, so those will be on it. It covers all my readings from 1 to 25. Okay, those will be on it. It covers all of the labs from 1 to 10. There could be questions from any one of the labs on the exam. What else? You do not need to know how to write a SAS program, but you need to know how to interpret them just like you did on quiz 2. Uh, what else? Other questions? Anybody got? Yep. Uh, I'm not. I, I'm not understanding. My the, the lab 
we each have 45 questions. And there could be lab questions on labs 1 to 10 in either of our sections. So 45 questions from each of us could, some of those could be lab questions. Is that, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, I thought there was a different part for it. Okay. No, 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 it's out of the, out of the, Lab questions are part of the 45. Yeah? Sergio's just reflect on the uh, lectures mostly rather than the reading. So Professor Sergio, as she has stated multiple times, the readings are meant to complement. If she hasn't talked about it in lecture and it's in the readings, it is not on the exam. That is the opposite of mine. If I haven't talked about it, it could still be on there if it's in the readings. Right? Is that clear? Yes? No, the, you, don't be thinking that the emphasis will be on the readings that have not been covered on quiz two. It could be from anywhere in the readings. Okay, fair question. All right, any other questions? All right, so folks, this is the last time we meet as prof student kind of thing. Thanks for your attention. Good luck on the exam, although luck has very little to do with how you'll perform, obviously. We will see you on the, whatever it is, 15th, 2 o'clock. Thank you.